test that we are on. All right, folks, let's go ahead and get this party started. We're all running a little late today, or at least I am. That's, I am, and so therefore you all are, is how that kind of works. All right. Let's grab whatever it is that you'd like to have while you sit down, your coffee, your donuts, your Bibles, and we are going to kick this off. Let's see, it sure helps if I have the right thing open. All right, let's go ahead and um, take a moment to pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful Sunday morning, which we have once again the opportunity to come and to learn about you, to learn about what you are doing in this world and in our lives all through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. How thankful we are that you are committed to us because of Jesus. That gives us great confidence to know, as Paul says in Philippians, that you who have begun this good work in us will indeed bring it to completion. You will carry us all the way until that final day. It is yours from beginning to end, and so for that, Father, we have great gratitude. As we come now to the Shorter Catechism, again, we pray, Lord, that you would grant us the ability to see and to understand what you teach in your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And for the Kitchen Patrol, look at that, can they hear me in there? No, they don't even know that. They're too busy enjoying themselves. All right, guys, we are back in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We're going to be looking at question 19. Again, uh, I know you all carry pocket versions of the catechism with you. Uh, you probably have it engraved on your you know, inside of your jacket or something like that. If not, there is um, in the Trinity Hymnal before you on page 870-ish somewhere, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You know, sometimes it's good to also take a step back and put this in context historically uh, when we talk about the shorter catechism, you know, it's just older language. It's, it basically means the lesser, the smaller um, kind of thing. There is a larger catechism, which was meant for adults. The shorter catechism that we're studying was meant for kids. Um, and again, the catechism is simply a tool. You know, if you hear that word catechism, it's just, you ask a question, you get an answer. And if you're able to answer all those questions, you have a pretty solid overview of what the Bible teaches. Uh, there is also another tool that was developed um, early uh, in, in the life of the Reformed churches, uh, but it's not a catechism, it's a confession, and so it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. All these are called that because they were uh, compiled over the, basically the, the course of a decade at Westminster Abbey. And um, the Westminster Confession of Faith is also found in the back of the hymnal, um, and that really is more just like, like it sounds like, Think of a creed, like the Apostles' Creed, but much more fleshed out. And those are just big chapters, big chunks of information. The Catechism breaks all that down instead into uh, little, little bite-sized pieces. So they each have their purposes and, uh, and their strengths, and, uh, and they're just tools that we use. Uh, in the end, they're not Scripture. Scripture is the only thing that uh, is actually inspired by God, which is to say that when you read the Scripture, you are actually reading what God intended uh, for us. Uh, but you can consider the confession and the catechisms to be summaries of the most important things that Scripture teaches. Not everything is found in them, uh, but uh, again, the summary of the most important things. So last week, we uh, were looking at question 18. We've gotten to this point where we've seen 
that mankind rebelled against God, and because of that, we have the fall. And when we talk about the fall, it's, a, it's an overall concept for what has happened because of our rebellion against God. And as I said last week, this is not too popular. Nobody likes to talk about it. But we're dealing with that negative part of, before we can get to the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, we have to deal with the bad news, why it is that we have um, a, a, a gospel in the first place, a good news of Christ. Why was that necessary? And before we read the question, let me just say, this is one of those important things. We began looking at this aspect last week. Everybody recognizes that there's something wrong with the world. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But imagine, when you go to a doctor, uh, or when you're not feeling bad, there's two things that, uh, that you're looking at. One are the symptoms, right? Those are the external things. Uh, well, they may be internal, but the things that you, that you measure that seem to be wrong, right? So you have a, a temperature that's much higher than what a, you know, a normal temperature of 98.6 ought to be, right? Uh, or you have a leg that usually folds this way, but now it's folding the other way. There, there's something that tells you something is wrong. There's a symptom. Then it's not enough to just recognize a symptom. That doesn't make you better. Uh, if you can't recognize the symptom, it's going to be hard. I mean, that's essentially the doctor asking you, where does it hurt? You know, he, he wants to get to the symptom. But then after that, what do you have to do? You have to find the The cause. Right? So, last week we looked at the cause. We looked at the idea that ultimately the fall was due to sinfulness, is due to the fact of our rebellion against God. And that has resulted in the fall. But the question today is going to look at okay, well, what is, what is the, the, the misery? What, is the, um, the, the, what are the symptoms of this fall? Or, Maybe a better way of asking it is, what are the consequences of our sin? So we looked at sin last week as being what caused the fall. What are the consequences? So that brings us to question 19. So let's do what we normally do. I'm going to ask if somebody will read the question and immediately follow with the answer, and then we'll jump in and get started. Will somebody read that, please? Thank you so much, Phil. So again, the question, what is the misery of that estate wherein to men fell? And again, that word estate, an older uh, you know, term, uh, basically means the condition or thus, or we might just knock the E off, the state. So our fall has launched us into a, a condition, a state of misery. And that was something we saw in one of the previous questions. Well, what is that misery? Misery can mean all sorts of different things. So it's laid out for us. And by now, you've begun to develop your catechism sense, right? You now know how to look at the answers, and you know that every one of those commas represents something important. Every one of those clauses, you might look and say, well, that's a lot of commas in this catechism. There must have been a thing, you know, from the 17th century where they were comma happy. I don't know if that's the case or not, but what's very clear is that they use those commas to like, today we would sit there and say bullet point one, bullet point two, bullet point three. You know, if I were writing a catechism, that's how I'd write it, you know, with little bullet points or even numbers or so on. Um, 
they didn't have that. Uh, so these commas are important. So all mankind, by their fall, lost, and then, and then begins to lay them out. So you already know, here we have the steps, and you can count them. Lost communion with God, under his wrath and curse. So those are the two things. And because of that, they're made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So there's five different things that are listed here. And we want to take a look at those uh, in order. But before we do that, let's just set the stage again. Because when we look out into the world, this is why what we've been learning these last few weeks is so absolutely fundamental. The whole of the world recognizes there's something broken. There, there isn't anybody who does not recognize that, right? Every world religion, every ideology, every philosophy recognizes that something is not right. And everybody is longing to fix it, right? Uh, but, but you can't help but just realize that something's broken, right? Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. The whole of creation is feeling the burden. The fall is not limited just to humanity, but the whole creation has responded. Now, part of that, getting a little bit away from this question, going back to when we first looked at this, part of that is because in the fall, God said, okay, okay, I put you as vice regent. I'm God, I rule over all things. I put you as my vice regent to rule over creation in my stead. You have rebelled against me. Now you will know what it's like to have the creation rebel against you. So every time that you sit there and things don't go the way you want, recognize that that is meant to highlight, okay, this is what it's like. This is what you've chosen. This is what you are doing to God, and so it now does it to you. That should be something that gets our attention every single time. Now the problem is that as unbelievers... We don't want to deal with, with God. That's part of the whole thing that made, made this mess in the first place. Uh, we either want God completely out of the picture, or we want God made in our own image, tameable and just the way that we want. So we have come up with all sorts of ways to get around the fact that everything around us is broken. And, you know, we've, we've come up with all sorts of ways to explain it. Science will come up with a theory of evolution that essentially, you know, cuts God out of the equation and tries to say that this is the way things just simply are and it has always been that way from the beginning and kind of removes the idea that what we see broken is a consequence of rebellion against God. And, and that's just, you know, a modern example, but there are many, many, many others. And whatever model we use, and you can look at, like I said, you can look at world religions you can look at Hinduism, you can look at Buddhism, on and on and on. You can look at philosophies like Marxism or every other ism that's out there. They all recognize that something is messed up and they all try to come up with solutions. And what's behind them all is, uh, again, they're not gonna be able to succeed because they do not understand the cause behind those symptoms that they're seeing. So, you know, if a doctor sits there and says, oh yeah, that elbow, wow, your arm is pointing the other way. Well, I think the very best thing that we can do now is put a tourniquet on your left leg. That, that'll help, that broken elbow. And no, it's not going to really do much, right? You're going to probably lose the, less, the left leg in the process. So you've treated the wrong cause. You don't get there. Now, if you're saying that sounds 
Silly, who would do that? We have one of the best uh, uh, indicators and catechizers, that something that teaches us about the failure of human um, ability and all that in government. Government, it's like the poster child, right? So you watch government go in there and mess something up. They messed it up. You watched it, and everybody on the talk shows talked about it, and you sit around the kitchen table. They mess it up, and then they come and do they say, we messed up. No, what do they say? We have a solution for this problem that just happens to be out there. And then they, they, they offer the solution, which is not the solution that would fix it. It's another stupid solution. So the capacity for stupidity and idiocy that we see in the garden, because that's what it basically is. God, I'm going to give you everything. You, I mean, you've got it made. Well, that's not good enough, God. <laughs> I think I'm going to be in charge. Let's see what I, you know. So you see, that's exactly what happens. I just use government because it's easy to spot, and we can all step back, and we can, ah, those guys are idiots, and everything else, and we watch them do it. But we do that globally all the time. And that's all these different philosophies and religions and everything. That's what they're trying to do. They all come up with solutions. If you look at... Um, uh, writings like up until especially the 19th century, about the 20th century, things change a little bit. But we've all spent all this time thinking that we could figure it all out. Uh, we'll figure out all the different diseases and everything. We'll be able to cure everything, maybe even death. And that's was talked about, you know, right up into um, well, even now through the 20th century and 21st, uh, 19th century. Also, we can figure out relationships and we can. Uh, uh, advance into the social sciences to the point where there will be no more war. Then World War I came along, and oh, that was just the last hurrah. And then World War II came along, and then you get defeatism, and you get um, uh, everything that came out of that. But even those guys didn't return to a biblical worldview. Their whole thing, you know, have you ever, have you ever studied Jean-Paul Sartre? I mean, hopefully not. Okay, do you all see the movie, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris? Yeah, it's a good movie, right? Yeah, it's, a good, it's a good book. And uh, the book is better than the movie, but um, the movie is still excellent. Jean-Paul Sartre plays a role, and it's really sad to see because it, he's, his philosophy is being played up as a very sophisticated, you know, um, uh, place to find happiness. Jean-Paul Sartre was an existentialist. I should mention that. And if you don't know what existentialism is, you haven't missed anything. You really have not missed anything. But existentialism and Jean-Paul Sartre ultimately said there's no meaning in life and the only meaningful life, uh, the only meaningful act that a human being can do is to kill himself. And so he killed himself. And that's how that works. Uh, once you sit there and you, you no longer fool yourself thinking that you can fix everything, that you will find a solution that will make everybody happy or that will develop a drug or a pill or, and, and all that, then you're only left with one solution. That is complete and utter despair, right? And if you look at the way the 20th century went, that despair was building post-World War II, post-World War II, just building. Finally arrived in the 90s in its, in its fullness. The 90s is the era. I mean, you listen to 80s music and then the huge change into 90s music. I know that you're saying, what does this have to do with the catechism question? Everything. By the time you get to 90s, it's all despair, the mu other than Celine Dion who we all know is wonderful. But um, <laughs> she's fabulous. But anyway, um, you get to that point of just despair. There's nothing left other than, so I might as well just live it up. And that's where we're at today.
Everything goes now because it's all about my, my, my sensual feelings. It's just what I feel at that moment. That's the only happiness that comes. So you see, all this stems from the failure of non-grasping all that. That's why what we're looking at here is absolutely fundamental in helping us to see the world and to understand what's happening. With that, let's go ahead and jump in and say, yeah, the, the world is very much uh, uh, suffering from, uh, from the fall, from all the miseries of it. And we see that, you know, like I said in Romans 8.22, for we know the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And the reason for that, we go back to the first chapter of Romans, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it doesn't say it will be revealed. We tend to think of the wrath of God as something that's future. No, the wrath of God, even right now, is being poured out. The fall, those consequences, misery in which, we in which we're in, is a component. Not the only component, it's a part of. It's not the fullness of it, but it's a part of God's wrath. Okay, so that sets the stage. So let's take it apart. What is this misery and it tells us there, uh, let's take a look at the first two together. It tells us that we have lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse. I'm going to take that second one first very briefly. Under his wrath and curse. Um, we can look at a couple of passages. Ephesians 2, 3 says that we are, or were, Paul's saying because he's speaking to believers, were by nature the children of wrath. So that's... That's in there. Uh, Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone that does not continue uh, to do all the things that are written in the book of the law. Um, so there's just some highlighted text. It could be others. The fact is, the fall is the consequence of the curse. Uh, God had said, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. And again, this is not a curse as in some witch who casts a hex. This is God simply saying these are the negative consequences of your disobedience. So we are under the curse. We are under the wrath. Again, wrath is not God's anger that he says to her, oh, I don't like what you did. You know, wrath is the, the righteous, just reaction of a God who is pure and holy to that which is not, that which is wrong. You have that perspective. When you see something that's really wrong, you recoil, don't you? When you see, you know, um, uh, I don't know who it was, we were watching, uh, oh, it was Men's Girl Night. I know it was just recently with some of y'all. Um, I don't know how we, because we're guys, and so we sit there and we do stupid things, and we're just looking at things blowing up on the internet and what have you. And then there was, we were scrolling, and oh, look, there's a video saying this guy is about to get rejected. He's proposing, in, it's in a third world country, he's proposing to his bride, a girl he wants to be his bride, and she rejects him. So we're thinking it's going to be like just some funny video where she just, you know, leaves him hanging. Unfortunately, it's not what happens. We were all kind of shocked because he says whatever he's going to say, and we don't understand because it's a different language. It's very clear she says no, and then he starts beating the tar out of her. And, and you know, our reaction is, and, and all of us are, you know, dude, we're going to mess you up, you know, all that stuff, because that's what guys do. That's, that's wrath. When you say it's a reaction to you see evil and what's wrong and, and you can't help but sit there and say, that's messed up. So let's put that in context. That's what's happening here. So the fall has brought us into that position where God is saying, that's messed up. 
and something needs to be done. And, be, and the reason we don't like wrath is because we're the objects of it. But when we see it somewhere else, we want justice. We want things to be right. And so God is doing that. So that's the second part. We're under his wrath and curse. I'm going to leave it at, at that. I want to focus a little bit more on that first part, that we lost communion with God, because that, that really is huge. What do we mean when we talk about communion? What, is, what does that mean to you when you hear that term? It involves communication. What, is, what else is, what is a communi- what does communication imply that there is? Relationship, absolutely central. If I uh, ever get around to doing John 1, you, you, you realize that the Trinity at its very core is a relationship. And God in three persons shows us that the idea of relationships is central to existence. If God was a monism, just one person, relationships would be an additional thing that he created. You see that point? So if you have Allah, our Muslim neighbors, their conception of God, the word Allah is just the word God in Arabic, so in and of itself, that's not a problem. But their conception of Allah, their conception of God as a monism means that anything about relationships is additional. It is a created thing. But in the biblical view, relationships is at the very heart of God's ontology, his being. And relationships are about what? They are, what's the four-letter word? Love. So at the very center of existence, even before there is a creation, there is relationship and there is love, which is what God intended for the whole of the creation to be. So when he creates us, he doesn't create us to be his servants, his slaves. He creates us to enter into that love. And when you read 1 John, not John, but 1 John chapter 1, Let's not talk about it. Let's read it. Somebody grab First John and, and, uh, and, and you see what, what John is talking about. One of the beauties of the Bible is that it all coheres. It all holds together. So you all have it? First John near the end of the Bible? Little tiny letter? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's talking about Jesus. We've seen him, we've touched him, we've experienced. Concerning the word of life, he's saying, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the word of life. The life, he's still referring to Jesus in in his essence as life himself. The life was made manifest, that is visible experience. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship. By the way, same word, communion. Interchangeable. You hear that when I do the communion, uh, when I do the the benediction, sometimes I'll say, uh, in in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, or sometimes I'll say, in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Same word. So, we're telling you this, so you may have fellowship Uh, with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So already we're getting a picture, and and we're writing these things so that uh, your joy may be complete. 
This joy is not just happy, happy, happy joy. It's this idea of that blessedness, of fullness of your existence may be complete when that fellowship, that communion which you had in the garden was lost will now be restored. You see how that works? You see how absolutely central this idea of communion is. God had entered into a relationship with us that we might be brought into that same love that the Trinity experiences. So that's the very heart of what it means to be human. And that has been lost. And you know where you can see that? You can see that in the fact that we're all searching. We're all searching. We're all searching. We're all searching for something to satisfy us. And we search and we search and we search. Uh, Ecclesiastes is all about that, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's um, a wonderful little book that sometimes is, if if anybody's ever told you, oh, Ecclesiastes just tells you... uh, it is about Solomon who, uh, who wrote it, and he wrote it after he had rebelled against God at the end of his life and after he had lost confidence, and so that's why it's so negative. If they, have, you ever, have you ever been told that, ever heard that story? No? Well, that's good. That's very good. That was a very standard evangelical thing, you know, growing up. Uh, I've seen in books, I hear pastors. The, the book of Ecclesiastes is in there to show you what happens when you despair and, you, and, and uh, you know, Solomon wrote it at the end of his life when he had lost his faith and that kind of thing. Rubbish, the whole consequence, the book is, is a wonderful book and it's there to highlight and to show us uh, just what happens when you do walk away from God but it's not the, the disillusioned writing of, uh, the writings of a guy who's become disillusioned, no. It's meant to highlight that search for significance and that search for satisfaction and how we fail to find it in anything other than God. Right in Ecclesiastes 3.11 he says, that God has set eternity into our hearts. We have a sense that goes beyond, you know, my dog has no concept that Sunday has no concept of anything other than is there food in front of me and I need to go out. You know, there's no conception. And same thing if, you know, you might say, well, maybe your dog's stupid. No, I mean, dolphins, the same thing, you know, whales, whatever. We're the only ones because we're made in the image of God who have that real sense of time and of eternity, that we were created for something more. That's been lost in the fall, and we know it's been lost, and we search for it, and we hunt for it. C.S. Lewis refers to it as sensucht. It's a German word that we've talked about before. Nostalgia, a sense of longing. When you hear that song from your youth, and it brings you back. And it's not just, but you know, it's, it's the warmth of that afternoon in which you're five years old and you wake up from your little nap right after school and the day is warm and the light's filtering through the window and there's music playing in the background. And that music could be whatever. For you, it might be 30s music, it might be 70s music, it might be, heaven help us, 90s music. What, you know, whatever it is that you're hearing. And it just... You, you, you long for something, a time of, 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 uh, of, uh, of, of safety, a time of, uh, where all things were right. Not, not all things were not right at that moment, but that's, that's that longing for something that's missing. And so we try to fill it with all sorts of different things. Search for power, search for you know, uh, uh, wealth, search for you know, sex, and every one of those different things, there's many others. Um, comfort, we always talk about those big ones. Oh yeah, I don't, I, don't, I'm, I don't long for riches, I don't long for, you know, I've been faithful to my wife. 
So we have people who sometimes comfort becomes their idol. Family becomes, traditional values becomes their idol. What? You're saying we shouldn't have traditional values? No, but those things become central. And what Ecclesiastes tells us is that every one of those, when we search for them and try to make them the center of our lives to fill that gap, they all leave us empty. They only work for a little while, and then we realize they can't fulfill uh, that need because that communion has been lost, and the only thing that can fill it is God himself. And so in his most famous book, Augustine wrote in the book of Confessions, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. You see, so we've lost that communion, and now Ecclesiastes can say, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity is, of course, the King James word. Today, we would use another word. Uh, we would use emptiness, frustration. The word literally means uh, the vapor that passes through your fingers, right? So you've got your, your pipe, and you watch, you all have pipes, right? And, and you watch that, that smoke go up, and you try to capture it, it doesn't work. That's what looking for satisfaction in anything other than Christ leads you to, Right? Ecclesiastes 7, 6 also says that the laughter of the fool is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Maybe, you know, we don't do a whole lot of external cooking outdoors with fire anymore, but the idea is, you know, you set your pot there and you put thorns, and what happens with those thorns? They burn very quickly, very hot for a moment. They blaze, but you, they don't sustain, right? And so he's... The author of Ecclesiastes is basically saying that's your life. When you, when you live life under the sun, and by the way, that phrase, there's nothing new under the sun that you see all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it has a dual meaning. Under the sun being everything, right? Everything that exists in this world is under the sun. But it's also a, 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 an earthly bound vision. All you can see is this. When you've ruled God out, that doesn't mean that there isn't God that you talk about him, whatever, but when he's not really the real God in the center of your existence, your, your vision is bounded. This, you see what I'm saying? It's, everything is just down here. That's all I see, and this is where I look for my satisfaction, all down here. I never look up and find it ultimately in God. And everything here will be ultimately unsatisfying, is what Ecclesiastes is saying. And so your life ends up like those thorns. You flash for a moment, and it looks like, oh, this is all great. And it's over. That's what we see here. Okay, got to keep moving. can say a whole lot more. That's, lost, that's losing our communion uh, with God. Uh, we just keep looking for all the empty things of the world, expecting them to fill uh, what only God can fill. Uh, then we also see that because of that, we're made liable to all the miseries in this life. Now, you know, this doesn't need a whole lot of explication. Uh, every one of us knows about misery in this life to some extent. Uh, thankfully, most of us don't know it to the extent that others uh, have gone through, but we do know it, right? Um, Job 5 says, says that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And there's all this other imagery in Scripture that says it's only gonna be a matter of time, um, and it's a rather short time at best, before disease, or war, or violence, or famine, or disaster is gonna come and get you. And it's gonna happen to you. 
not to somebody else only, to you. You are going to succumb to disease or to a disaster or to violence or to, uh, you know, something that's going to just happen in your life. And so you have all this imagery in the Bible. Uh, Our lives are compared to, what, shadows, to a dream, to a single watch in the night, uh, to a flower or to grass that, you know, just basically one day is there and the next day is not. This idea of the transitory, you know, nature of our lives, they come and they go, and, and while they're there, we suffer. We suffer. So that's what the catechism question is getting at. Uh, it's true that sometimes there are momentary blessings for the wicked. We look and we say, well, they seem to be enjoying themselves. They seem to be doing so much better. It only make their doom at the end even that much worse. And we also know that um, uh, believers can sometimes be chastised through trials and so on. Uh, of course, uh, Romans 8.28 tells us that uh, God works even that suffering for good. So that's, that's something we can talk about in, some, in another setting. The point is, though, that misery is universal, and it's inescapable, and, uh, and we all go through it. So I'm going to just kind of leave it there. Uh, again, more can be said. Uh, the next thing, then, you see in the catechism question is uh, that we're made liable to death itself, so this idea of the universal dominion of death. Now, you all believe this academically. We all know it, uh, but do we really know it? Uh, I've been, you know, Timothy Keller is, you know, is in, now in his uh, second year of uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. He's been um, basically just holding on. Uh, he's going through experimental treatments and so on. And, and you know, and this is Tim Keller. You know, you, this guy gets the gospel and all that, and yet you hear him, and he's always been real. Uh, there's nothing fake about him, and you hear him just coming out and saying that his prayer life has become so much more real in the midst of this, because he's really realizing, I'm going to die, you know, and, and, and the reality of that, uh, you know, has, has helped transform. He says, oh, I wish I could have known this, you know, 30 years ago. He said, I wouldn't trade it. We're in a better place now. You might say, well, you're about to die. How could that be a better place? Because it's forced him to really think through so, that. so anyway, the point is, well, Hebrews 9.27, that's the point. It is appointed unto men to, want to die once, or once to die. This idea is that's a reality, it's coming. And even though, you know, 1 Corinthians 15.26 uh, says that death is the last enemy to be defeated, it will be defeated, it is the last enemy to be defeated. So it's still very much operative, it still does uh, it, it's its thing, and because of that, I mean, you you know, you read John chapter eleven, the death of Lazarus, and it tells us, you know, what's the short you'll learn in Sunday school? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? And it's John, you know, in eleven thirty three, where he says that Jesus wept, and why would Jesus weep? Because I mean, he's about to raise Lazarus, but the the, the death is so universal, its effects are so horrible, it is not despite whatever you're told in the Lion King and every other philosophy, it's not part of the natural cycle of life and all that other stuff, the circle of life, I guess, to use the language of the Lion King. By the way, movies are great catechizers also, so you just got to determine as a parent uh, which catechism you want uh, for your kids. And if they watch the Lion King, and I'm not saying don't watch the Lion King, my boys watch the Lion King, all that other stuff. But it's, it's meant to catechize you into a particular way of thinking. Just like Star Wars is the, the best catechizer for Buddhism, and uh, New Age spirituality that we've had in the last uh, half uh, last half century um, started with the Beatles, and again the Beatles didn't create 
New Age mysticism, but popularizing it. And then uh, just when the Beatles broke up, Satan said, oh, I've got to think of something else. And um, he told George Lucas, hey, write this movie. And he did. And uh, have I seen, <laughs> some of you are going to sit there, now I'm going to get sued by George Lucas. You're saying I'm the devil. But uh, you get the idea. Okay, let's move on here. Um, the point is death is universal. It's caused by sin. It's part of man's misery. And then the very last thing is um, it talks about the everlasting punishment of the lost, the pains of hell forever. And I'm going to take just a moment here to say, um, oh, you're talking about hell. That's so unloving. Oh, stop it. You know, okay, that's typical kind of thing, reaction today. There are even some Christians who say that there is no hell. It's not just unbelievers. There are some Christians who say God, a loving God, would never do that. You know, my Jesus would never condemn anybody to hell. You ever heard that? You go on the internet, you'll find it sooner or later. The problem with that view is that who's the person who most spoke about hell in the Bible? You counted up all the times that hell was spoken about. Jesus, Sunday school answer. No one talks about, and it's not even like by a little bit, it's like by a long margin. No one talks more about it, more than any prophet, more than any apostle. He constantly warns us of hell because he loves us, right? If you see somebody about to do something stupid and you care about them, you're like, you're about to do something stupid and it's gonna result in this. And that's what he's, he's doing for us, right? So, you know, Matthew three twelve, he talks about the unquenchable fire of hell. Ma- uh, Mark nine forty eight, he talks about hell being... Uh, uh, or the experience of that being the worm that does not die and the fire that, does not, that is not quenched. Uh, he continues with that theme of, of uh, uh, fire, uh, talking about torment of fire and brimstone in Revelation 14.10. In Matthew 8.12, uh, 8, he describes our condemnation uh, uh, as being cast into the outer darkness where there will be gnashing and, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some of this stuff is obviously metaphorical, but it's meant to talk about um, a, a condemnation where there is true misery and suffering uh, to a great extent. So the idea that there is a, a, an ultimate level of this misery that's ratcheted up to the nth degree is, is a biblical idea, and it's a, it's a Christian idea, and it's spoken about in the Bible. If you don't have that, and if you don't have the fall, and if you don't have the miseries of this life, See, Romans 5.12, Romans 5.3 puts our suffering into perspective. And I want to talk about that. We're going to end with this, which is the distinction now for being saved. And what does that mean, that you're a believer? The suffering that people go through now is meant to get your attention. God could have, uh, when we sinned against him, wiped us all out, started from fresh, or whatever he could have done. The fall uh, keeps you alive long enough and shows you, okay, this is what it's like to, re- uh, to rebel against me, but all with the idea, as, as the prophets keep telling us again and again, so that mankind would uh, repent and turn from it. It's meant to get your attention and to lead you to repentance, that doesn't happen, then the fullness of that misery comes on you. Now, Romans 5.3 tells us that for us, our suffering is not just, no no longer a warning of the future, but becomes actually redemptive. Uh, We rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says, and that's when you, you know, sit there and say, well, Paul is nuts, clinically insane. Who rejoices in their sufferings? 
because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And I could unpack that, but because of time, I won't. But the point simply being is, suffering for you, the believer, is redemptive. Suffering for the unbeliever is simply a warning of what is to come. That is where I want to end, which is talk about there is a distinction then. Even all mankind then falls into this misery of which the catechism question uh, talks about. All of us are found in this, this state, this condition. However, there are some real differences once we become believers that distinguishes the saved from the unsaved. So let's take a look at the, some of those differences right now in this life. The very first thing we saw is that you lose communion with God. Well, when you become a believer, that communion is restored. Not perfectly, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, but that communion is restored, and that makes all the difference um, you know, uh, in the world. Because of what Christ has done, we're brought back into that communion. We just read about it in 1 John chapter 1 that fellowship, that communion, that, that was the whole reason, you know, they said, we, 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 we know that life itself was manifest, not just some dude, but life took on flesh, and, and we saw it, we touched it, we, we, we spoke with him, we, we heard him, and we're telling you about this because we want you to, and it's right there in that first paragraph, we want you to experience that communion that's been lost. We have that communion, and we now, you want you to have that communion so that our joy may be complete, that kind of thing. You can see he's trying to bring us back into that relationship that we had before uh, the fall. And so we've been delivered from that. We no longer near, need to fear the wrath and curse of God. That's been taken away from uh, the believer. We no longer fear that eternal punishment because Christ was punished for us in our place. So that's a huge difference, and that happens already, you know, right now. Now, it's not full yet in this in this life, right? Uh, our communion with God is still not perfect. Uh, we're still weak. We're still sinful. We're still uh, beset by by uh, by sin and weaknesses. Um, and there is a sense in which not so much that we're punished by God. It's not punitive, but we are corrected. We are disciplined, right? Hebrews twelve six says, "For uh, whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He disciplines every son whom He." adopts or he receives. Uh, so in your life, there's still going to be sickness, there's still going to be sorrow, there's still going to be all these different things, but they're no longer an expression of God's wrath and curse, they're now corrective discipline, and it takes us back to the Romans 12 passage, uh, Romans 5 passage that I was just talking about, um, that you're, for you, suffering now becomes redemptive, and God uses it to build you up, to chasten you, and to discipline you. But it still means you are experiencing at some level the misery of this life, but, but it makes all the difference in the world. You're now back in communion with God. You're no longer punitively being, you know, uh, suffering out of, uh, out of punishment. So that, that's just some of the differences in this life. Now, how about death? There's, you see the difference already between the saved and the unsaved. At death, your body remains when it dies, right, uh, away from God, as it were, gets buried. One of the reasons, by the way, in which we do Christian burial, as opposed historically to cremation, and I'm not, not you know, if you've cremated a loved one or you're thinking of doing that and what have you, and like, oh, you're saying it's a sin. I'm just saying the reason historically for which uh, Christians did not cremate um, uh, remains 
was to emphasize that that body was not uh, lost. It's still in union with Christ. It will be resurrected in the last day. It still is of importance. But yes, for now, that soul is separated from the body. But at death, one of the things we realize is that our soul has already been in communion with God. And so because of that, the soul immediately enters, if you want to use that old term, into that full blessedness of that relationship, of that communion. Uh, that happens not for the body, but for the soul. For the unbeliever, this is the distinction, they too, soul separated from the body, the body also remains. Their soul moves into the fullness of suffering. Remember, suffering in this life is just a precursor, just a warning, just a foretaste. For us, it's redemptive, it's used to discipline for them, it's a warning of what's to come. But at death, it's too late, and their soul experiences the fullness of that suffering. Our soul experiences the fullness of that blessedness. So that distinction is very clear at death. And then on um, the last day, the resurrection, um, oh, did I skip something here in my notes? Oh, just one little note on what I just said about the soul, one, one suffering. One, the reason for that is your soul is already made alive. It's resurrected at your, uh, the, the point of your belief. When you believe, right, at that point, you have been regenerated. Uh, you've been made alive. The new birth, Jesus speaks about that. No one uh, can come to, you know, to the Father. Uh, well, uh, John 3, 3. Uh, no one can enter the kingdom unless he is born again, right? That kind of thing. So it is at your rebirth, not your body, but your soul that enters into that communion with God. Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1, tells us that the unbeliever, their soul is dead and remains dead. So because of that, when their bodies die, their souls were already, as it were, dead. And so that's why the soul suffers uh, now in the fullness. But then at the resurrection, we are reunited to our bodies. And so now our soul has been experiencing the full aspect of blessedness. Now we're reunited to our body. And then it becomes body and soul that that, uh, experiences that blessedness. It's heightened even more. Sadly, for the unbeliever, it's the exact same case, but in reverse, their bodies are also resurrected. They are reunited and made whole in that respect, body and soul, and now their suffering is both physical and spiritual. So those are the distinctions. It starts in this life, in which even though you're still going through all the same miseries, you're no longer out of communion with God God now uses your suffering for good purposes. Well, it's all for good, but for, um, ben- for us beneficial purposes, whereas the unbeliever remains dead and separated from God. And the consequences of that is at death, full blessedness for your soul, not for your body, full cursedness for their souls, not for their body, and then at the resurrection, the fullness of the experience, both body and soul. Does that make sense? So 10.05, not too bad. Um, that's the catechism question in a nutshell. There's a lot there. All these are the consequences of our sin, this misery. Questions, comments, things that we want to bring up. Interestingly, we're not experiencing the ultimate, which is um, a good question. So Phil is asking... Uh, 
is there anything in the Bible that says why are why is our body so important? You know, if our souls are already enjoying uh, blessedness, uh, you know, why do we need our our bodies? And um, interestingly, you see in the Book of Revelation, the very souls, and again, this is symbolic language, uh, but the very souls crying out for their redemption. For our our salvation is not complete until the resurrection. If you look at the whole of the Old Testament, not just a portion, the whole of the Old Testament, look at Paul's writings, for example. When Paul talks about the hope of redemption, how many times does he talk about dying and wanting to be with the Lord in his soul? One time. To die is Christ. I mean, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he's talking about, he was, he's, he was about to be tried, he's thinking, I might die, and he's saying, Maybe I'll be spared. Maybe I get to live with you and, and that, uh, to live as Christ. I get to share Christ with you more. I get to be, be with you more if I survive this. But if, if not, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And, it's, and, and, and he talks about that moment. But throughout the whole of the New Testament, the hope is the resurrection. And the reason for that is we go back, is why it's always good to go back to fundamentals. We're not created as souls. We're created as body and soul. And a, and a human is not complete without them. You can't be human without your body. Your, your soul is not you inside a shell. So despite all the Star Trek episodes, you know that you can take your soul and you can implant it in an android body or whatever. It's not going to work. You're, in fact, you've heard me say this. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I think, does a good job with this describing what does it mean when our soul is in heaven and, and you hear people saying well, we're going to experience it we're going to be dancing with the Lord you can't be dancing with the Lord because you don't have your body to dance in fact you can't experience anything without your body what? it's true uh, we've talked about this before things like the fact that we're made in the image of God right? it's not your soul that's made in the image of God it's you, body and soul, that's made in the image of God, and you need both to be able to reflect God. You cannot reflect God, be in his image without both. So we've said this before, so for example, God is creative. Therefore, we as human beings are creative. How do you create? Okay, I wanna write a, I wanna write a story. I create that way, or I wanna, uh, I wanna sculpt. I create that way. So you have to grab the clay with your hands. You have to mold it with your hand. You have to see it with your eyes. You have to write the story. You have to have heard things in life that build up, you know, a store of ideas. Your brain has to be at work. You're incapable of doing any of those things without the physical body. Your physical body is as much you as everything else, which is, again, why I was saying we historically have buried bodies to indicate the importance of the body. Does that mean that if you cremated, you know, your loved one, oh, they're not going to be raised from the dead. God will be able to raise anything and everybody and so on, and I'm not knocking that and all that. If you have questions, we can talk. It's easily, I say that because in 30 years of, uh, well, next year will be 30 years of ministry, I've been asked so many times the cremation question, so I know it's out there. Um, but, th- but the important thing we're trying to get at here is your body, Phil, is of vital importance. To, you are not you until you are reunited to that body. So, and Sinclair Ferguson has said that th- that time in heaven will be something like a baby in the womb in which the baby does not really uh, think. And, I mean, you know, he's obviously got a brain. He is thinking and he is feeling, 
but because there's a sort of uh, sensory neutral spot, what is that the right word? Sensory deprivation, something you're being deprived, but you know, it's, but what does the baby feel? The baby feels warm and protected and you know, all gooey and good and everything, literally gooey and good and all that other stuff. And something like that is, Sinclair's just using it as an analogy, it's gonna be like that in, in that, we call it the intermediate state. So I'm gonna leave it there because oh, you know, we're really pushing our time, but this is why the body is absolutely so essential and why every non-Christian philosophy tries to denigrate the, the body. And, um, and we, you know, we talked about that, I think, during the Christmas time, you know, the idea of, uh, of the body just being a shell or the body being evil and all physical things are evil and, and only, what's only good is the spiritual. And you might say, well, today it's the reverse. All we do is live for our body, but that's also a denigration because it reduces us to simply sensation at the moment. You know, whether it be sensual pleasure, uh, and uh, we've got a mixed audience here, so I'll just leave it at that. You all can figure that out. Or, or eating, ooh, one of those wonderful, you know, hamburgers or, uh, you know, um, uh, cheeseburgers or whatever, you know, and just whatever that physical pleasure is at the moment. And if you just live for that, then you denigrate the wholeness of who you are as well. Because, again, your body is designed for so much more. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. You guys can, but it's a good question. Is there anything else that uh, really are out of time? But if you don't ask this, you won't be able to worship. Your week will just collapse. So, <laughs> no, okay, let's, let's close with prayer. We're a little past our time, but we'll be back on schedule here. Uh, let's, let's close. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made us body and soul to experience you in your fullness. And we have just been reminded uh, in looking at this um, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, uh, unnerving and um, maybe, maybe depressing uh, aspect of the fact that because of our rebellion against you, things did not go hunky-dory, but in fact, uh, we are uh, suffering in the whole of our existence, the miseries of this life. Uh, we need to face this. We need to look at the reality of it. We can't address or understand the solution until we understand just how deep um, and how real uh, the problem, the cause of the problem really is. Uh, Father, we know that uh, humanity has spent literally eons trying to, um, to find other answers and to find other causes. And so we pray that uh, this will open our eyes to see clearly what the problem is. The beauty of it is it lets us see very clearly that the solution is found in Jesus. And only what he has done can deliver us from this. We thank you, Father, for him. And as we prepare for worship, may that be foremost in our minds, that, um, uh, that through Christ you have given us the ultimate solution for uh, the misery of this life and for all the suffering that, um, that we see around us. We thank you that even now the suffering that we do experience is used of you redemptively to make us more like Christ and to p- better prepare us for that day of ultimate blessedness. Until then, Father, help us to continue trusting in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.